Hello and welcome to Reflections with Raja, a podcast about purpose and life and the moment that we're living in right now. I am so honored and excited about this next guest, um, Christina Wong, who is an artist, community activist, and just all around amazing person. We've been in similar circles, but we've never really had a time to sit and have a conversation. So this is um, our time to sit and get to know each other and have some really great question and dialogue. So I'm really excited. Thank you and welcome to the show, Christina. I'm so happy to be here with you and connect with you. Thank you. You know, we have roots to LA and UCLA and other spaces, but I think I've always just appreciated your liveliness and your ability to engage community in different spaces. Uh, And I know you've been really busy, particularly amidst all the COVID stuff that's been happening. So I'm I'm excited to hear so much about that. But um, let's start with a really simple, basic question. What is your story, Christina? Oh, what is my story? I tell lots of stories for a living. I, I usually tell people I perform a character named Christina Wong, and she's uh, has a martyr complex, and she embarks on all these missions to like fix things, sometimes naively, and ends up learning more about herself in the process. So uh, I toured a show called Wong Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, um, and initially that whole show was spurned by me wanting to addressed the high rates of depression and suicide among Asian American women, but somehow not make it about me. But of course it completely ended up, (laughs) you can't, you can't, I say you can't talk about depression and not mention, like, especially as an Asian woman and not talk about your mother or your family. Like that's making pornography without sex. Right. But a lot of these shows, I think I kind of naively, I'm like, I'll fix it. I'll do it. Um, I, I went to Uganda, uh, a few years after that to do volunteer work um, because I was really lost. I, at that point was 35 years old and I had never, I'd been working so hard to have a career as an artist, which I thought would satisfy me. And I just found myself really depressed on tour, not really into the show. I was touring, not really in the theater anymore, but going, well, what's the point? Like what else am I destined to do? Um, so I had the cliche eat, pray, love moment where I would go to (laughs) Uganda and then I ended up making a rap album with some guys I met in the street, local rappers. And I know that sounds really ridiculous and silly, but it ended up becoming much more complicated because I, so I just sort of see this as a pattern in a lot of my work. Even now I have, I'm running a group called the auntie sewing squad during the pandemic, which started as me offering to make a few masks for people who needed it. And lo and behold, uh, I end up really bitter and <laughs> now running a, a team of um, a few hundred aunties who are sewing all over the country. And into our third month of this pandemic, we are continuing to fix the failures of the federal government to prepare. So, um, you know, I, I just I get in this shit kind of naively and then I end up on the other end, but richer. And I, I hope I report back on that, on the, on those, on that depth and the work. I don't know what else you could say was my story is that, that I sort of got into this as a response to me feeling like I needed to be seen and not having access to therapy. And now I've dragged thousands of audience members later into, <laughs> into you know, now I actually see a therapist, but and this work still is very therapeutic and gives me a sense of purpose. But yeah, here I am. Uh, it's powerful. And I, I think the, the piece around finding the need and responding to it without necessarily knowing where that's going really resonates with me. And the idea of um, trusting your heart almost, f- it feels like going in, going into the unknown. It makes me think of Gloria Anzaldúa um, that says, you know, there, there is no bridge. You're going to make it as you go along. 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I was at UCLA, where I got my bachelor's degree, and I looked at working performance artists, I was really drawn to the work because they were talking about all the stuff that you weren't supposed to talk about if you wanted to keep your family in your life, you know, like hmm. everything from uh, sexual trauma to, to to race to just uh, performing in your underwear. And I was like, I was like, wow, it's like they're doing their therapy on stage and they're getting paid and they get to travel. Like it was so naive, right? Like, my, <laughs> but I was like, I want that. And um, I learned after Wonk Lou the Cuckoo's Nest, it's like once I get a show down, it becomes quite boring for me. And and I created two other shows that were sort of about my past and just sort of mining my past. And I just, it wasn't very useful. And I felt like it was making me live longer in my pain and not, um, not transcend it. And so from that point forward, I just decided, I mean, I learned a lot by doing the Wong Street Journal, which is my show set in Uganda, which was like, I have to treat every new project as like, I don't know what this is going to be, but I'm going to learn at the end of this. Like every project is my own private grad school. Um, so I ran for office uh, uh, last year. I ran twice. Okay. <laughs> I ran twice. I'm an elected official now in Koreatown. 72 votes, including the vote I cast for myself. And uh, I, I have a show that has been now postponed called Christina Wong for Public Office. And that uh, basically looks like a campaign rally. And it was supposed to be, it was when I premiered it in February, like the most timely show of my life because here I was responding to what was supposed to be the culture right now that we're supposed to be in of Joe Biden doing rallies and Trump doing rallies, but now nobody can hang out. Theater is dangerous for different reasons because you could literally die if someone coughs. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so now I, I rather than get really kind of sad and feel sorry for myself, I'm just sort of pivoting like, all right, what's next? What's next? You know? And um, it's a lot of labor. But um, I guess I just can't get too attached to the regret of it. Like the regret of like, man, why did I spend three years on a show that I can't tour now? Yeah, no, I, I so appreciate the life lessons you share in there about you just have to kind of do what feels right and then find the meaning later and not feel like you have to know what, what you're doing to do that. Uh, and also just enjoy the process it feels like as well. I, I will say I was completely terrified. Like when I, when I, I remember just going, I'm going to Africa. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. It's very naive, very problematic, like for me to think that I'm going to figure my shit out by going to someone else's home, right? That's ridiculous. But yeah, I, I, I think I did a decent job of confronting that after the fact and making clear how naive that was. I, I had a moment before, similar to the Uganda one a few years before that, where I was like, oh my God, I've been waiting my whole life, like whether I admit it or not, waiting for like a lifelong partner to join me in traveling the world. And I'm not getting that. And all my friends who I could have possibly traveled with are now pregnant and I got to just go. And it was scary. And um, it's, 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 it's tricky sometimes. I, some women might not agree with me, but I think traveling alone as a woman in different countries is really intimidating. There are more safety concerns than if you present as a, as a man um, or, or as a white man. Right. Um, I, I've been completely terrified, but I'm, I, in retrospect, I'm glad I, I did it because now I realize my body uh, is not up for like, I mean, I guess I could still travel just not now, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely like, you just have to, Sometimes just do it on your own. 
Yeah. So what would you say is your gift to the world? Jesus, I don't know. Right now it's masks. <laughs> sure. So oh, tell me yeah. more about how that happened. Um, I think I create communities and, uh, and that's one thing I have felt very proud about. And I think the Auntie Sewing Squad is one of those communities. I've also done theater projects. But what happened with Auntie Sewing Squad is like I sew my set pieces and props. And um, when the when COVID, the lockdown hit, I was like, I'm not going to do what I did after 9-11 and after 2008, which is freak out and feel like I have no control and feel like the sky is falling. I'm going to pretend I completely have control over the situation because I do have power in the situation. Um, a lot of this talk about privilege, I guess, that has come up in social justice circles has made me recognize, yeah, I, I, I still have a lot of power. And so I got uh, portalettes for the unhoused neighbors I have in Koreatown. And then I began to like collect donations for quarters so they could do laundry. And there were so many quarters, that, like so much laundry quarter money that came in that I ended up being able to buy a washer dryer for these unhoused seniors, these Korean seniors in Koreatown. And then I read this article that Mia Yamamoto's wife, Kim, sent me about a hospital that needed fabric masks. And I was like, I know how to sew. And I found a scrap of cotton and I sewed it and I was, uh, and I had some elastic, which is so hard to find. And I just naively was like, Hey, if you're immunocompromised, I'll make you one. Just reimburse me for shipping. I didn't want to make money on it. Also, my sewing is super messy and I didn't realize that nurses would find me or homeless shelters or my friend's firehouse needed masks in New York city. And I was like, Oh boy. And it was really hard to say no. Cause what are you going to do? Be like, Oh my bad. I need space. Like I would hope that if I showed up at the hospital because my arm got cut off and I was bleeding everywhere that the nurse there wouldn't be like, Oh, I'm sorry. I have to finish watching tiger King and work on my sourdough bread starter. Then I'll get to you. Like, like you know, you want them to like drop everything and help you because so, so for me it was like, I, I just, I just, I just said yes to everybody, even though I was not a professional at making masks and never made medical equipment in my life, believe it or not. And, and I use a Hello Kitty home sewing machine. Right. And so I, I, uh, I sewed my first mask on March 20th and then March 24th, I was like, I need to make a Facebook group just like see if I can find some help and some support. And I looked, there were other mask making groups, but they were like, they were so big. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to join these groups and then be lost in a big group. So like, this is typical Christina who needs to be in control of everything. I was like, well, I'll just start my own group. And my friend, Audrey Quo, who's my neighbor, who was helping me cut fabric was like, yeah, you know, there's squads of aunties being deployed right now to do this work. And I just love this image of aunties of, you know, women who might be immigrants or, or don't speak English or just sweet old ladies, right. Who are, who are literally like saving the world right now versus a Rosie the Riveter, you know, image of someone who's being paid by the, by the government to do this work. And so we called it the auntie sewing squad, not realizing the acronym was ass. Uh, but now we love it. <laughs> We're, we own it. Uh, we actually have a class that one of our Grace Yu teaches at San Francisco State has an auntie sewing squad class. So we're the ass at ass, <laughs> the ass of Asian, ASS at Asian American studies. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's really funny because we're literally aunties and we're just so sweet and caring with each other. And like just sort of organically things happen because I was like screaming at the internet, you better help me. Instead of just asking me to make you masks all day, I'm fucking hungry. 
send me a fucking pizza. Like I'm not food insecure, right? But it was it's just like I I'm susceptible to the same loneliness, burnout, existential panic, and virus as the rest of people. And I wasn't getting that people respected that. Like sometimes people would treat me like I was Amazon Prime and be like, I heard you're selling masks for two for five bucks. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Like this was supposed to be like a a you know, my health is your health kind of thing out of love. But people are very um, used to the transactional nature of of the way things work. And also, so, so a lot of people were giving quite generously because they knew I was giving stuff away um, to people and I had all this money. And so I ended up sort of underwriting the aunties that joined my Facebook group and offering to buy them elastic or send them things because it was just so hard to find materials. Hmm. Anyway, um, uh, and then we, I would get, people were so concerned about me because I was like, because I was literally just like freaky to out overworked in public and people were offering me pizzas and I began to direct the pizzas to different aunties, which became our care system that we, so we now have a, like a separate care fund. So you can support the aunties by buying pizza or a tea package, or we have some aunties who, uh, Rebecca Solnit, the feminist writer, she, she just mailed a bunch of her books different aunties to read you know and it's it's a it's I think it is what has sustained us um and then what makes us a little bit different than other mask making groups that um that they basically just sort of a labor farm and a stopgap like we we started out as one of the smaller sewing groups but now I think we're, we're still going because unfortunately there are a lot of communities the government has left behind continue to leave behind that's first nations day laborers uh migrants um seeking asylum farm workers, very poor minimum wage workers uh, who are also immigrants. So so these are the communities that we're still sewing for. We've been sewing for protesters um, at Black Lives Matter rallies and trying to find ways to support other Black communities uh, who are much more vulnerable to this virus than a lot of other groups. It, it should not be necessary, and I don't want to romanticize it as like, we love sewing, we love it so much, we do it for free. But it has been a great way for for the aunties and some uncles and some non-binary aunties uncles to <laughs> to find purpose in a time that feels so fraught. That feels like yeah. the world is. I mean, like uh, when those protests got really uh, uh, big the first week, I I was like, "Is the world ending?" Is are the and as we approach the election, I'm like, "Is the world ending?" <laughs> I'm still asking it, but I at least have this one tangible thing I can do, which is sew and provide protection for these other communities. Uh, and, and that has given a lot of us a sense of power in this moment. And I think the fact that we find ways to care for each other through things as simple as someone baking 12 lemon loaves and then distributing them among different sewing sewers in their homes um, it just means the world. That's beautiful. I, I, there's so much there that I, I love about that conversation because I think you, it's not only being able to contribute something to the larger cause of protecting people that some you'll never know, um, but then also creating a culture of care, particularly for those like you named that are like, you know, for me, I think the, the self-isolation and the isolation. Um, and so what does it mean to even create that space to take care of each other amidst this larger pandemic? And then also the racial advocacy and organizing that's happening and, and the layers that it's all building on is beautiful. And that's so great. I mean, it is a really crazy time 
it's also an opportunity, right? It is complete yeah. chaos. I, I, I kind of casually joke. I'm like, oh my God, there's a pandemic and a race war out there, right? But it's it's actually a great moment for us to like pause because we don't have offices to go to and and to kind of reflect on, on this empire that we've been so dead set on building and this economy that we like are in this fucking rush to get started. And, and, and we're... Where are we doing this in ways that have not been working? Because we're seeing that begin to implode very quickly. And um, I really just hope we learn a lesson from this and do better. And I see a little bit of it happening that police budgets are shifting, that defunding the police, uh, which should not be a real radical idea, um, which all it means is like reroute money to social services, not turn police officers with guns and jails into social workers, right? Um, but to, to, to kind of think about like what is not working about our systems, but it it has taken this insane fever pitch. Um, but like from this point of view, I'm just seeing how much neglect there is in this country, just from the communities that we're, we're just sending masks to. Right. Right. Just the infrastructure. I think that's for me, I think the, both of the two big movements that are happening in the world right now make me realize that there are deep, deep, deep flaws in our infrastructure. And and I think for me, it keeps me thinking about like what HIV and AIDS and the pandemic did was also highlight our, our systemic inequalities. And this is another opportunity to do so just at a more exponential level. So you've talked quite a bit of how you've been able to find some agency and control in all this. Um, what do you, what is something that we can all do to make this world a little better? Well, I think, uh, how do we make the world better? I think participate and get outside of yourself and your ego. I think, I think the kind of gift of this moment was, well, I don't even, you know, I could be writing. I, I had these visions of like, I'm going to get in the best shape of my life, write a screenplay, pitch a show, but that felt all very clear, unclear as to whether or not that would get going anytime soon. So instead I found myself just giving and I've just never been so generous in my life. You know, I like as a performance artist, I am kind of inherently a little self-absorbed and self-concerned about my career or is my audience going to be there for me. And, and this is a very different way to give my, give of my work and time. And um, it's been really an amazing thing to give to other people who are giving. So I remember like when the first nurse came by, well, the first, I remember her writing me and just was like, oh my God, I have to help her. Like, she's like, I, they're telling us to like wear bandanas around our face at work. I don't want that. And so uh, what a lot of this has happened too, by the way, in terms of infrastructure, um, a lot of us, a lot of our masks have to either get smuggled into hospitals where the bureaucracy is such that the nurses can't just order a mask through the funds they do have. Our masks have gotten snuck in across, uh, have been sneaked across the border, smuggled across the border to Mexico. Uh, one of the PPE printers I know who's been printing face shields actually printed them in a color that the hospital would see and think came from an actual hospital distributor. Like they're being smuggled into U.S. hospitals. <laughs> so... I don't know. It, it feels like this weird mission that we're on. So what you're asking, the question is like, how how do we support or help others? Or Yeah. I, as we think about creating the world that we want to see, right? Like what is something that we can all do to make this world that reality? I think we just make it. I mean, that's what I do as an artist all the time is like, I... I make the work I wanted to see when I was growing up. I have a kid's show called Radical Cram School. Like that's basically the web series I wish I grew up with that gave me these college level ideas that didn't shy uh, off from talking about race or gender. 
like I didn't get all that until college and I'm still getting it now. And I don't, I don't want anyone else to have this big wake up call at 18 if they're lucky enough to have been in the same programs, you know, that I was in to get it. Like, I think we're, we're getting really clear that we, we can't keep hiding behind our, our best friend who's black or how we went to a rally last week and, and then went back to sleep, you know, like ally is a verb. Um, <laughs> this is a complete mm-hmm. active process and we have to like, we have to admit that we're all learning and, and that we don't know all the answers and we get shit wrong. Um, it's a long process and I just hope that we don't get so hyper-focused on returning. Like we keep saying returning normal and it was never normal before this. And that should not mm-hmm. be any kind of standard for, for what we think is okay to go back to. And I think a lot of people have recognized this. It's not okay. Um, but I, as I, I just feel like as someone who's literally like this deep, this close to it, where I'm, where I'm almost feeling at moments that we were helping build a, a guerrilla hospital on the Navajo nation with our <laughs> relief mm. van drives that there's no government. <laughs> there's no, like you can't like there are systems in place but you know what? You are also the system. You you can be your own system and bypass all that. It's a very slow fucking system. So in terms of building the world you want to see, there are ways to just build it. Even if it's in your backyard with three friends you have over for lemonade and you're like, let's let's make a play. I don't know. <laughs> you know, but I'm always constantly thinking about, oh, there's no one made this before me or or they did, but this is how I want to do it and just doing the work. So in all this work, you've talked a little about the, the toll that that's taken on, particularly around the COVID and the mask, but also just in general, the the work of being an artist and putting yourself out there um, and being an organizer. What nourishes you in all this? Well, the auntie care system, I think, helps. Like We have such amazing aunties that we call, we just call them caring aunties, and they they cook food, they bring food by. And like, again, it's not that I'm food insecure. It's not that I don't have the money to order my own pizza, but there's something so meaningful that someone took the time to listen to my dietary restrictions. And, and that gives me a couple of days where I don't have to think about cooking and I can just like sort of focus on my work and feel loved. I also spent um, my stimulus check on a massage chair from Amazon. I was just like, you know what? I'm not going to be able to fucking make it through this pandemic without getting a massage or going to the Korean spa. Mm. So I'm going to buy this. And I found one for about 800 bucks. And my mom, who's usually a big cheapskate was like, you deserve it. So I knew it was serious. <laughs> she was like, <laughs> Go get it. So yeah, I, I, I do feel very proud that I, um, there's a whole joke. I refer to myself as the overlord and everyone like sort of gleefully calls me the overlord of the auntie sewing squad. And cause the whole joke is like, we are a sweatshop. We're quote unquote. We, you know, we are not dealing with the same issues that sweatshop workers globally are. But for me, I use that term to point to how much the federal government failed us. Like we should not. Like my living room should not look the way it does right now with supplies and stuff everywhere. There should be masks readily available to healthcare workers, to frontline workers, and to everyone else. But they are not, right? Um, yet cities are requiring that people wear it. So it's like, I don't know how you make those two come together. (laughs) But this is is shameful what they've done. It's the the level of neglect is so shameful. And so I use the term sweatshops and anyway, and there's some sort of ownership around that language, especially because so many of the aunties are Asian and have had garment workers as mothers and grandmothers. 
and it does feel like this weird irony that we've, you know, we're the college educated generation and yet we've returned to this work in the country that was supposed to give us this dream of mm. <laughs> being this developed, wonderful country. And so there's a lot of humor that sort of stems from this weird history and connection to this labor. So fascinating. I think that what you said just made me think about my own family. And I come from a long lineage of Hindu spiritual leaders. And when I went to college, my parents were like, okay, well, like you're going to become a, a doctor, like a medical doctor, not the doctor, as my mom likes to say, you're not a real doctor. Uh, <laughs> uh, but um, it, but it's interesting, I think, as I've come back and as I know so much of the work that I do is um, lots of spiritual work, particularly Hinduism and queerness and identity. And, and so much of that is a part of my day-to-day -day life. And it's interesting because that it took me getting a doctorate and being in the U.S. for 30 years to learn that all the lessons I needed were in my own DNA that has been embedded into this experience. The history is, is embedded and actually is the thing that's allowing me to thrive in this moment. The answers are, are already in our history, right? And it's a matter of do we listen to the, the, that history or not? Yeah. So last question for you. Um, in all the work that you're doing in the world and the way you're existing, who inspires you? Oh, who inspires me? I mean, I used to have an answer before COVID. I'm just trying to think who now like inspires me. I mean, like I've, I'm really, before COVID, I would have named off names like, oh, I love Yoko Ono's work and Michael Moore and the Yes Men. They're so subversive. Mm. But now I really look to like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm. the squad, right? Like Ayanna Presley and, and Rashida Tlaib and, um, and all these awesome freshman congresswoman i look to organizers um the founders of black lives matter i look to like the, that i don't know if they realized it would i wonder if they also thought that black lives matter was going to be a two-week stopgap but like it like exploded in the whole movement that now you, you now you have like companies like lyft issuing solidarity statements you know mm -hmm. and it's like that is the power of uh, of something that's more than a hashtag, right? It's it's uh, so. But now I'm looking more to, towards those folks and just people who organize uh, because they're right now art doesn't exist the way it used to, right? We can't go to galleries and theaters. Mm. I, this this is not to say that art doesn't exist. I think in the form of social practice, which is uh, someone told me like that's a like I just picked up that term. I'm like, oh, is that what we call free volunteer work? Communities, <laughs> <laughs> but we give it an arty name so we can maybe get an arts grant. But yeah, so my friend was like, oh, yeah, that was sort of how the white art institutions began to tag what we've been doing forever. Um, but yeah, so I'm sort of looking at at movement builders and I'm just sort of, yeah, looking to how cities lead and shift conversations that are making their way to policy. Um, that to me is something I really admire because that's what it's going to take. It's not going to be like a painting on the wall that is interesting and then you walk away from it, it needs to be like some serious big shit. And that's a lot of creativity and a lot of vision to make that happen. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I think what I've noticed is like it's shifting from these kind of pedestalized people from different generations, different spaces to like people who are doing the work now and, and, and the possibility of us being able to do the same too, which is kind of cool. Um, is there anything else that you want to share? I... Uh, I have been sitting with, there's a part of me that is as miserable as this time 
can feel physically on my body because I've just I don't have my full range of motion. I feel like I feel like we're on lockdown, right, in our homes. Um, part of me sort of used to this, and part of me is not necessarily enjoying is not the word, but is something that is to be said about the quiet and not having to run around seven hundred places in a day to show my face or make an appearance or shake some hands that his, and and I don't want to use any kind of positive adjective, but it does sit a little in that space of, I do find that maybe I'm more of an introvert than I realize. And there's part of me that does like not having to see everybody all the time. I miss people to death, but part of me just sort of, I guess, I guess I've cut out a lot of bullshit, I guess, from not having to a million things on my calendar to have to run to. And I and I've, I have, I guess what this has forced me to be is a lot more clearer with people and just cut straight to it and not hold on to shit for too long. Like call it out, they unfriend me, whatever, right? Like there's so many other people who are like-minded and supportive and I just don't have time to be friends with people who I think might give me something down the road. And I'm, I'm witnessing this with, um, there's a, a theater, a small movement happening with, um, with, Black Indigenous People of Color theater artists called the We See You hashtag. And there's this public letter, We See You, W-A-T, which stands for White American Theater. And it's, it is like, it just lays it out. Like for, you know, we've, we've like used to you dangling carrots in front of us and using us to spice up your programming and just like every grievance finally laid out. And I feel like, yeah, that's how I feel now. Like I, I feel less afraid to, kiss the ass of people who I think are going to give me something because we live in times where that something may not even exist. So I'm just like, fuck you. Like, I just, (laughs) let me just tell you what I want or tell you if I don't like what you're doing or just avoid the bullshit. Yeah. That makes sense. Hmm. Well, this has been beautiful. I so appreciate the work that you're doing and the ways you exist. And I appreciate the auntie squad. Um, I know quite a few folks in LA who've been involved and it's been, transformative for them as well in multiple ways so i appreciate your initiative and the ways you are supporting us in this work i'm so glad that this has given us an opportunity to get to know each other better and thanks to everyone for joining us the music you heard today is by pistol jazz called irizumi and look forward to another episode on podbean or any of the other podcast providers that are available 